This is the Beige and the Bold, and today I am watching Yesterday's Enterprise. I'm Van Velding, and this is a solo session, because I was slightly too lazy to edit today's actual episode. And three, two, one, engage. I know that this is actually one of the most popular episodes of the entire series. Don't tell Derek. Um, but you know, I like it. I enjoy it, but I don't like like it. It's fun. It's a cool idea. I understand that they wanted to bring Yar back. <laughs> Worst happy face. This is so great. This is in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, coin drop. The they have this tendency to say, "Hey, look, we're going to do a story. It doesn't involve Quark." So then there's like a two second scene with Quark where he's like on the main view screen. He's like, I'm doing crimes on Deep Space Nine. And they're like, whatever, Quark. That's your contractual appearance for this episode, which counts towards your contract count, whatever. So it feels like they're doing that with, with Michael Dorn here. Just saying, yeah, you're in this episode. It's also, I mean, it's also a great contrast, right? We instantly see Guinan. Worf gets to do some stuff. We, we begin dimensionalizing Worf as a character. Which, when I was younger, and I hadn't really reflected on this show, I really thought that Worf got the short end of the stick. And he does in some ways. I think this series kind of mistreats everyone's characters. Uh, except for maybe Picard. So, that includes Worf. And, at times. But Worf generally gets a pretty good shake. He gets some strong storylines. Like, Cleon stuff. Cleon politics is a lot of this show's episodes. It's a lot of strong ones, and uh, it's some of the best. Some of the best things about this series. And outside of that, Worf episodes are kind of shaky. But generally, Worf has those episodes, and no one else can say. You know, Data never got a string of episodes which defines the direction of this series and its tones. Occasionally, his family shows up, and we're all like, eh, these are okay episodes. Anyway, so we're getting a little bit of Worf, and we get focused on Worf, so we're paying attention to him when we get into this. It is impossible to believe that a regular staff writer and a nerd hatched up this story, and they hammered it out over Thanksgiving weekend to meet the the scheduling needs of Whoopi Goldberg and Denise Crosby. And, and it's, it's a good one. It's a quality episode. Never let me talk shit about the quality of this episode. One of the things in the solo sessions that's important for me to do, especially if I'm just filling in because I'm too lazy to edit the, the end result, is it's super important that I don't curse and that I don't mention another Star Trek series that I have to insert a sound for. So I just love the look of this. And we talked in the original series about how they worked with light to change things around, to get more work out of what they had and this is just inverted lighting. The dark tin forward is now a crowded mess hall that's well lit. And the bridge is now, it has, has more people. It is also darker. And of course, Guyan is telling us the obvious, which is just to handle us, the audience, to just say, yeah, no, it's different. You're not imagining stuff. Look, it's different. Because someone at home is like, wait, is everything different? And someone's like, no, nah, it's all the same. It's still Captain Picard. He just has a super high chair now. It's good to see Denise Crosby back. And I I think she's just doing her hair differently, and I think it completely works. It's great. 
It makes you look kind of like a baby, like it's a baby's haircut. Like Yara just wandered into the wrong barbershop, but it works. Like a 50s baby, not a regular baby, a classy baby. So I completely understand the enthusiasm people have for this episode. Like, I get it. Yar's back, you guys. I keep imagining the guy from Futurama from the episode where Caculum goes away and, like, they lose the television and they have to kick Bender out of the apartment. And then, like, Bender's kicked out of the apartment and he's sad. And then someone inside the the apartment goes, Hey, guys, Calculon's back. I just feel like that about Yar every time. Every time she comes back. Yeah, spoilers. So I like it. I like that she's familiar. I I was happy with Skin of Evil. Then again, I also like the ending of Neon Genesis Evangelion. So take that with a grain of salt. I just, I like things that aren't standard narratives. I think people are hung up on, oh, Yard died, but Yard didn't die in the way the stories do. Like a, like a big hero and, oh, she's... Yeah. She died with her last breath. She managed to resolve all of her plot lines and tell people how she really felt. I mean, sometimes people just die. And you don't get closure on that. And they're gone forever. Like, it's sad. And certainly, there's we need a name for that conflict. The name of the conflict where we say, Hey, look, television should represent the realities of life. Also, television should be an escape from the realities of life. And that's not just television, obviously, movies, books, web series, whatever. But there's a dynamic there where I think you have to be true to life in some respects. And you have to be enjoyably escapist in in other respects. And I think that in many respects, if you're going to say, hey, look, this is a fun space thing. Here's a fun space concept. Here, on the other hand, here are people who don't wear magical suits that make them immune to thorns. They don't wear temperature-controlled things. They don't have mega-immune systems. They're just dudes in pajamas. And what they do is dangerous, because that's why the danger is real. And if you're going to do that, then I think it's critical to say, hey... Sometimes these people will die a senseless death. That's the point of making your characters vulnerable and that they don't have plot armor. Not in that they need to survive your story to be on next week's episode. I mean, yes, but also in that when they do die, they aren't protected by the plot armor of needing to have a dramatic death. And I'm the first person to admit, this is a dramatic series. This is an action series. And there's a difference between Game of Thrones action and Star Trek action, certainly. And Tasha Yar's death was definitely closer to Game of Thrones action. So I get why people are unhappy. Unsatisfied. Unsatisfied with her death. I think it underlines the, the-, the show's... Um, more conservative themes that, hey, space is dangerous. Because space is dangerous. That underlies everything they do out here. And I think whenever you unceremoniously kill off a character, when you have Marla Astor stumble into some minds on Worf's watch, you say, hey man, these guys are all just one bad die roll away from dying. But what they do is important, and that's why they're here. So to say, ah, I don't know, her death wasn't really dramatic, we should we should get a do-over, I think lessens that impact. And it happens in an alternate universe, so I don't care. 
I don't, I don't, I don't think it undermines the original Yar's death. I think this is clearly a case where everyone gets to, some people get to have their cake. Some people get to walk around with cake and be like, hey, this is some sweet cake. Ah, I anticipate eating this cake. And then other people get to eat their cake and it works out fine for everyone. I don't think that makes this a bad episode. It doesn't really get under my skin. I think it's overrated. Maybe I should, maybe I should put my, my feelings for this episode that way. There's not a big ethical conflict in the middle of this episode. I know what you're thinking, but, but, but no, no, there isn't. Is there just a ladder in the back there? Is there not a turbo lift there? On the back where there's usually a turbo lift? Anyway, I do like this model. I like the, this great fusion of the Enterprise D's kind of oversized saucer. It's soft lighting. It's more angular nacelles mixed with the old series circular um, engine drive and simpler like deflector dish setup it's it's just a great fusion of the two ships visually it is an it is a nice looking vessel i accept the enterprise d is kind of i don't think it's ugly because i grew up with it so i, I love it but i realize that it is it definitely feels built out of function instead of form internally i feel that it's very aesthetically designed but the exterior i always feel with the sloping curves that taper down to points or um you know the neck that kind of broadly spreads out that all feels like it's some kind of warp dynamic thing energy stuff so it's always felt very functional even if it's not immediately oh that's an awesome ship the imbalance works because it's made in space so it's just fine the original series ship is always solid i i like the ambassador class perhaps for the novelty of it perhaps because i just don't see it a lot the enterprise season is an ambassador class so i i like the combination it feels like <laughs> the best of both worlds and uh I believe that this is this is the the bridge of the oh, what was what was the ship from the one with the Ferengi? I, I'm a huge fan of it. Where they played Stratagem, where they played finger chess. Peak performance. It's the bridge of the Hathaway from peak performance. It's the battle bridge. It's I think sometimes it's a science set. It is the I'm gonna check on that turbo lift. Oh yeah, there's a turbo lift back there. It's just got some extra horizontal lines on it. I like the old school displays because they were still making the original series movies. So like all that stuff was just around and they could just gather it up. Same with the coats. You can see all the crewman uniforms back here. You can see all the old uniforms. They don't have like the fluffy turtlenecks. I know I've mentioned it before, but the those turtlenecks allegedly took a machine that was an antique at the time of Wrath of Khan when they first started using using those uniforms. And so I think after a certain point it broke or they couldn't use it anymore or whatever. And I think, I believe that's the reason they quit using the puffy sweaters underneath the red shirts. And they look bad. I'll, I'll, I'll bitch about that when someone's actually on screen. This is great. Putting Gein on the bridge is such a great use of, of convention and breaking convention to add gravity to a story. I don't even know why Guinan's allowed up here as a civilian because they've worked really hard to give us this alternate present, uh, plane shifts, everything's different and militarist. Love that tax screen. 
um, version of, of the present. And then Guinan just wanders onto the bridge, but she's Guinan. She knows Picard. So the thing is, is that I'm sure he, he waived her rights or whatever. I feel like I'm nitpicking that point. I feel like that point is a nitpick, objectively. So this conversation is great because it builds on, like, she's, I've called Guinan a magical black woman, and I stand by that. And it works for the plot here because she's so mysterious, we don't know. And, like, Apocrypha says that it's because part of her is in the Nexus, but screw it, she's an Elorian from the Delta Quadrant. She's, she's mildly telepathic. She's a hundred years old. Screw that. She can sense disturbances in the space-time continuum. It's not that hard to do. Maybe maybe her people just evolved around the time rift or some crap. You never know. And she's like, oh yeah, no, totally. We, I grew up like two blocks down from the Time Lords, and those guys are dicks. You're like, oh, we're never going to have a time war. And it's like, bitch, we know you're going to have a time war because there's a time war happening right now, which means you're going to start one because time war. Huh. Sorry, I'm trying to suss out the 1984 overtones of we have always been at war with the Daleks and in the middle of a time war. Regardless. But we get sold so much on the Guinan-Picard dynamic. It's good to have an actual scene that shows us that instead of telling us that. And I think this, this series does a great job of saying, hey, tell, 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 and then show, show, show. Because it takes time to show something. So sometimes, as a matter of efficiency... You have to tell us little things, and we accept it as a given, so we can kind of move on with characters or setting or story or whatever. So I accept implicitly that there's some history between Guinan and Picard, because like a year and a half ago, Wesley started asking Guinan about these rumors. But now we have a scene where Picard, even a harder bit, more malicious Picard, with a lot more on the line, is like, all right, Guinan, uh... I have a high level of resistance to what you're saying because whatever, but there's a time rift outside. There's a ship right here that's out of time. And I really, really trust you. Um, what you're saying is kind of insane, but it kind of makes sense for all of this stuff. I am a sucker for the moment in these episodes where the captain has to tell the other person that they're from a different time. I don't know why I like it. I just like it. It's a, it's a trope I enjoy. Mostly, I guess it's because I appreciate the captain telling people what's happening. Uh, this lady sells it. I, by the time we watch this episode, I should have it. I should have her name written down somewhere. I am, I admit, worse in general at remembering the names of female characters and the actresses who play them. Originally, this was a Richard Garrett. I think it's a change for Rachel Garrett. It's, it's a good change. Uh, more lady captains. The original series was short on that, so we're still pulling up the average from those numbers in the 60s. Um, but in all honesty, I've never heard anyone complain about Rachel Garrett being a female. I think she's been perfectly fine. Just She kind of is here to do what she does. She doesn't really have a lot of character. She's sort of just generic Starfleet captain, and that's, that's fine. We don't waste any time characterizing her because she's completely irrelevant. What we have to do is... Get to the point where we establish the stakes. Picard makes his choice. Yar has an episode with a romance because she really didn't have one. This is a makeup episode for Denise Crosby, basically. All the storylines she didn't get. 
the first time she's getting now where she's chief of security she gets a romantic interest she gets to do something heroic it's like three episodes in one that's crazy so she gets to make up for all of this stuff and it's great the i think i just saw john mulaney do a bit of a stand-up set no i watched him do an old bit where he was on snl as like a correspondent where he goes i love things they're great so i'm probably calling things great with a gr- bigger than frequency than i usually would so please excuse me as i try not to repeat myself too much lord knows i hate repetition so right so we're we're focusing instead on yar and castillo yar because she's yar she hasn't gotten a lot of time and then castillo because he's her he's her love interest i also think i like their characters uh, they just don't have dry cleaners. They couldn't just give him a jumpsuit and clean his goddamn uniform. I think they do it before he leaves. So, the sh- they're eventually going to have to go back in time and be big damn heroes. And I think that it is honestly one of the most balls-out heroic things TNG does. Everything TNG does usually feels like a little, a little restrained, a little, mm, yes. And then they go from restraint to bam, overpowering, and it's done. Which I like. I like that about the series. Uh, no kidding. But I think it is great that this is balls out, outgun. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Uh, this is fine dialogue where they're getting work done, but they're also talking about the personal toll that this takes. They're just like, oh, travel through time. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, I remember taking freshman time travel at the academy. Well, guess we're in the future now. Blah, 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 blah. And. I think it's fine to do that if you're writing a nerd book for nerds. I think if you are making a television show for Middle America where you talk about these things, uh, where there's really no big principled stand there, you're not you're not trying to teach us a great moral lesson. Uh, this is this is clearly an action episode in its lack of, of moral ambiguity. If you're doing that, then you need to say, hey, look, I've traveled through time. Oh, wow, what does that mean for me? And we do have this conversation where Castillo goes, wow, everyone I know is dead. Which, I mean, sure, if if you're experienced at this, you've got the fucking bingo card of time travel tropes. But you gotta say it every day because people have been born and grown up without seeing this at series. People are looking at time travel for the first time. And I think that for Star Trek to be a, I love how they crowded the corridors. I never, my brain, I never noticed it, but my brain did in, in previous episodes. And look at all these guys, there's a guy running. Anyway, so I think that uh, something up moral turpitude, I, I think I, ne- I think it did too many nested dig- digressions, so I lost it all. So I, it's important to go over the basics here. And it might be a little bit, mechanical for us but it also builds this yar castillo relationship which is a good relationship that's worth getting into um because it's the one relationship yar has and adds an emotional dimension to this he's kind of an anchor for her when she says oh wow if the present's going to be different then i don't belong here what everything that is around me is about to drop out from under me, and it puts her in the same position as as the crew of the Enterprise C here. 
Her doctor senses tingling. Oh, God damn it, captains are screwing up. This is a classic, uh, a classic Bones McCoy fight. I like that her captain's braid is is all askew, just because whatever. I just I feel like I feel like as soon as they're in a fight, everybody just changes into their dirtiest laundry. A guy comes around with dirty jackets, is like change into your dirty jackets. Like stuff explodes and gets on people. We're doing this again. I feel like, I think we did this in Kiyuhu, the original Borg episode, where we kept coming back to meetings where we talk about these things. This is so interesting. They redressed the, um, not good enough, damn it. Ah, oh, say it. Say it, Picard. It's so good. I He rarely ever loses his composure. And, again, it works so great when he does, because he doesn't usually. Everything here is a lot more raw, a lot closer to the bone. And she is just, <laughs> this is a fight. These people are having a fight. And this is how they fight, with civility and passion and reason. And his, his moral quandary here is completely logical, completely something that we think about. There we go, not good enough, damn it, not good enough. But you can tell from that, that kind of sophistry, He's asking the rhetorical question because he doesn't want to send them back. He wants that bird in the hand, which is another starship. He's fighting this. But he feels that she's right. It just goes against everything that he is. But he has to trust her. And this is what it means when, when you trust someone. When you're like, hey, if you ever need me for something, I'll be there. And it's really easy to be there for someone when they need something easy. But when they ask you, not even to do something that hurts you, but to say, hey, look, this thing has to be done and it will hurt. It will have negative consequences for someone else. And that's not like a really common friend request. But those bonds are important when they are the hardest to reaffirm. Um, and that is what Picard and Guinan are doing. <laughs> Given her side eye like she's proof the entire timeline is broke. And that's why that conversation is so poignant. Because she is asking him for a lot. And he says everything about that is wrong. He wants to keep that ship. And that's, that's going to play into a thing I'm going to do later. Which I don't necessarily believe in. But which I want to argue. And these, um, these guys are great. I like this. It's a great integration uh she's uncertain these characters were never supposed to meet it's i don't know i feel like i've seen this dynamic somewhere i just don't know where or maybe i just know it from here and it seems so archetypical characters that should never meet or should never know each other and they do meet people from different worlds i've i've read about scenes in the novels where garrick from deep space nine there i go again meets captain picard and that that is that is like seeing yar meet guinan without the story even saying oh these two people should never meet because i do maintain that deep space nine and voyager and the original series and next generation do exist in these different universes where different rules apply um you know violence is almost never the answer in star trek the next generation and ds9 Violence is, an, is a key that opens many doors. It's practically a master key. There's, there's more going on with Deep Space Nine. But, but you get that. 
anyway, so so for someone between the two shows to transfer is it's interesting. But Miles Miles O'Brien does that, and he fits in both universes just fine. Worf does that, and Worf is Worf is Worf, but he still seems like a very different character uh, between the two series. Uh, don't tell Derek that Worf moves. I think he's going to be pleasantly surprised in about four years. <laughs> um, please wish me luck on not spoiling that before we get to that point. Yeah, so, I mean, based on... I, I love this little briefing scene where everyone kind of hates it. Data has nothing to say. Ah, Jordy. I, I respect and admire your lack of interest in maintaining the timeline. And Picard's like, yep. So he's got to sell it to his people, which is just great. And Jordy's like the obvious thing. And Data's like, yeah, maybe they grew up, maybe they were neighbors with the people from Gallifrey. Those guys are dicks. So, whatever, Gaiden's right, because he's magic. Okay, guys, just whatever. Some weird space magic. Note, this is one of, like, four alternate timelines that Deanna isn't in, because... <laughs> reasons anyway so it is it shows that we're kind of unspooling this idea even more and this isn't a sensible action show in the middle of a war and this is like the third conceptual conversation we have about sending people back in time and Riker ain't I, li I like war Riker these are all war versions of their characters and it's disappointing that Riker couldn't point this out because you can't have that reproach in this episode. Anyway, it would be cool if like, oh yes, Riker, I know you were stranded on this planet with the crew of the Paw one time, so you understand Cleon's better than anyone. And therefore, he can still be like your Cleon specialist, despite the fact that you don't have Cleons. Uh, I don't know if Data needs to be here, if they're just out building Soon-type androids in the middle of a war. I think that's fine. I would be interested in seeing Deanna. I love... This is a really on-the-nose line, but it's a good one. And, of course, these two. Because we don't have a lot on Yar's character, but there was that one time she and Data banged. So, therefore, their characters are connected. And so, we have this little moment within that isn't intimate or friendly. It's just they're, they're grouped together. And... I, uh, they have they have a moment a moment here that has echoes of their relationship again I wish I wish it'd been Jordy like I'd be perfectly happy if the doctor and data came out and data says there's no way to know what our status you know what changes the timeline happened it's entirely possible that some of us may be irrevocably changed or even dead and then she has the scene with Jordy because as you know I believe that Yar and Jordy could have had something like that the the foundation was laid there effectively and whatever we're going back to data which is fine you know i believe in the chasing amy ending to yar Jordy, and data but we have another scene that gives us the temporal rules which again it's good intro level stuff it keeps star trek accessible uh, it kind of lays out point by point where our head is at what's going to happen in this episode, and what that means. I talk sometimes about pitching the, the premise straight across the plate. 
And I think I, I occasionally mention doing that with the stakes as well, where they're like, if, if we need to get the proton torpedoes right into the Death Star's exhaust vent, and then you see a little picture of that happening, and then it shows a picture of the Death Star exploding. And you're like, okay, we now know what we're trying to do and what that means for us. So then you go forward and, and you, you, you have your conflict and you have the context for that conflict. And that's fine. It's fine if someone just says it. You know, if we hit that uh, bullseye, the rest of the uh, dominoes will fall like a house of cards. Checkmate. I think that's however you need to do it. In this episode, because of the timey-wimeyness, you do have to go over that in some detail and plan it out and spool it out step by step by step. And these people do a masterful job of that. I watched this when I was motherfucking eight. And I was pretty on top of this. Allegedly, Jonathan Frake still doesn't know what happened in this episode, which, to each their own, I guess. I'm sure that happens to actors a lot, though, especially with conceptual shit. Uh, I mean, do you think Matthew McConaughey knows what happened in, um, not Gravity, Interstellar? I don't, I don't know if Matthew McConaughey was in Interstellar, but even if he wasn't in Interstellar, he probably still doesn't know what happened in Anyway, uh, I think this is the time where Picard lies to Captain Garrett and tells her that one more ship won't won't make a difference. Oh, they went to the cleaners. Great. So that I guess those clean uniforms and the dirty uniforms I was joking about tells us something about how much time has elapsed. So, but no, Picard Picard lied to her about losing the war. They talk about how they just had a military victory. He wants to keep her ship, so obviously a ship is important. So. Is that enough for him to cling to the hope to keep a ship even though they're losing the war? And he's like, no, one more ship can help us. Or does he eventually accept, hey, we need the slim chance of preventing this war because we're going to lose? Is it a Hail Mary play? So I don't know if he lies to her there. And that's an interesting bit because I refuse to accept that the Federation could lose a war with the Cleons because the Federation's just better and smarter and they have fucking Pacolets and Binars. And the goddamn Traveler visits them in times. And it's just, it's difficult to imagine the Federation couldn't make peace with the Cleons. The Cleons, as a two-dimensional warrior race, no. But, hey, feelings look. No face journeys, lieutenants. Ha-ha! Ah, they jump immediately into action. This is, I just love this. And this is a tiny little set that they're doing this on. And they are just killing it. I guess she checks on Picard. Bam. Out of the seat, into the seat. Cool little cat in the spotlight, which neatly offsets. I like how things are underlit to offset the darkness of the set. It's great. Anyway, anyway, so is the Federation losing the war? I don't know. I mean, I guess the Romulans, I could definitely see a thing where, ah, oh, man, it's the, it's the geology station is what happened. It's just the geology station that exploded. So, how do you still not get that shit? How do you still not, like, penetrate their cloak or use cloaking devices? Anyway, I think maybe if the Romulans came out of hiding uh, three or four years ago and they decided to suddenly support this war or if they never went into hiding because of the war... So they're using the Cleons as proxies to fight against the Federation. I could clearly see how that might have happened. 
This is so rough. Because suddenly they're at, they're at an even greater disadvantage. It was a suicide mission before. But now it's... This guy's not even a qualified captain. Like before Garrett could have fought and been like, hey, we can't go back. And now Lieutenant Castillo's like, I whatever you tell me to do, Captain Picard, I'm just lieutenant. Which, it was never really an issue. Like that wasn't contentious. But instead of convincing a fellow captain to go back and die, he's now ordering this fresh-faced lieutenant who we like as a person to go back and die. And they're trying to give them all the help they can, but, um, the you know, they're, they're just, it's even worse, and they're sending these people to die. And that is, oh, classic Kirk light across the eye. I, uh, and again, things are bad and they get worse. And since this episode does genuinely believe in making things bad and then making them worse, then, you know, I, I'm inclined to believe that, yes, the Federation is losing this war. I don't like that concept. I like the notion that the Federation has the tools to solve problems through more than just raw resource collection and application of violence. That there are, are other answers to these problems, which, um, which are available because that's how Star Trek The Next Generation works. So the notion that they're in a war and losing it to the Kleons is not something I like. But clearly in keeping with the altered rules of the universe that come from being in an alternate universe. He's got nothing. In the movie they had like belts and little com badges. He's got none of that stuff. And I'm not... 100% sure on why they all look underdressed like they're sort of a cosplayer that that's you know cos like cosplayers make great great stuff and when it's good it's good but when it's not ah god damn it <laughs> this is this is Star Trek with the cool factor turned up significantly where people can just know who folks are without turning around and people get in big damn battles and Picard jumps over shit and I uh, say that'll be the day. I love it. I I thoroughly enjoy this departure. But I just don't think it's it's the level of high art based on principle that we've come to expect from Star Trek. <laughs> and here's like the, the, the knife through the heart where they have to talk about Tasha dying. Where Guinan says, no, you're dead. There, there is a way the universe should be, and in that version of the universe, you're dead. I don't know what to tell you. I, I, it sucks. But to tell someone that they should be dead, like even minus like any sort of moral judgments about it, like you can definitely say, oh, that person should be killed for like death penalty reasons or whatever. Um, but to say, yeah, no, the vast uncaring universe, like the, the churning of the waves upon the beaches of time just flipped your switch to off, baby. And I don't know what to tell you. That's how things should be. That's what we're trying to do here. We're going to kill you, Tasha Yar. And if 80 billion people have died, though, like it tips the scales, but it's a very personal consequence. Because what it does is they're sending the Enterprise-C back in time, of course. But in a very real sense, they're already sending Natasha Yar back to die. And of course, Picard already knows she talked to Guinan. 
it's and again that saves us a lot of dialogue and it makes everything move a little faster and builds these characters they know that there's a tension here that there's a wrongness here and Guinan Guinan is the source of this conflict people feel that if they're in the wrong place in the wrong time there's only one person that could have given them that hard truth the oracle the oracle at the front of the ship Sorry, Picard's telling Yar how important she is to him and, and how she could cling to life. And so Yar says, hey, look, I'm pretty sure this is going to work. We're banking on this working. And I need I need to make my life mean something. And this is, this is why people join the military. This is why people join Starfleet. <laughs> uh, and we have another scene where Picard is just dragging his heels against the indeterminable fates it's a suicide mission and tng even whenever it gets back to our regular universe acknowledges those suicide missions it just say hey this thing has a really low risk of you coming out alive and people die you know spoilers for later episodes um they make some life and death decisions here and it's always with npcs unfortunately um, but here we're doing it with an actual character. And even though it's an alternate universe, that gravitas, the, the significance of these decisions, um, remains, remains. I think this does mark a heavy point in the series. Yara initially died because she just acted. She acted to take control of a situation because that's what she knew from her upbringing. And... And she died because of that. And here, um, she's going to make the decision. She's part of the decision to send Starfleet officers to their death. And uh, <laughs> that that's a horse of a different color. So, it's, it is more significant. And it, it makes the life or death decision that we're going to see later matter. And to have that weight. Because we know this episode is going to follow through on all kinds of ways to kill Yar. <laughs> just name the way you want to kill Yar. And man, you might just see it before this series is over. Um, you should probably change your uniform, Yar. Just wear something different. I mean, just it, just for when the Romulans kill you. And then, you know, go over the wreckage. Or if the Cleons go over the wreckage. So they get to die together, which is kind of romantic. It's hard not to get caught up in the episode because there is, again, there's a lot of talking in this episode, but a lot of significant talking, meaningful talking, saying, hey, look, here's a problem. Here, we're going to solve it, move on to the next one organically, and we're going to develop things. And these guys thought they were saying goodbye. He's got belt loops, but no belt. I don't get it. And now they're going to do the thing. This is my one... I think legitimate nitpick for this episode, uh, which isn't just me saying, hey, it's not a great TNG episode, it's fascinating television, and it's viscerally enjoyable, it's just overrated. So, there were apparently some death scenes eliminated here from the final shot where, uh, obviously we see Riker famously get killed, I don't know why that sticks with people, I think it's just because you don't expect Riker to die. And I think Wesley gets decapitated, which seems like a bit much. 
uh, written but not filmed. Data gets electrocuted to death, written but not filmed. And here he uh, he doesn't address, which I think he's done once or twice before. This is probably the best. I get goosebumps when he says the name of the prize. I'm not saying it isn't effective. I'm just saying that all of the things that TNG is good at, this is an episode which cashes in on it and doesn't pay it out. So I suppose I feel to some extent that the 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 raising high of this episode that people have people don't realize how much work has how many episodes have to be written for the payoff in this episode this is like the the series finale of of, of a doctor who right where everything kind of leads up to that and what this does instead of you know being purposefully built up it just pulls from the rich history of many other things to create that same feeling where there's depth here, there's Cleons. You understand who the Cleons are. You understand who Yar is. You understand Picard's character and his relationship with Guinan. And oh, look, there are many different enterprises and there are time rifts. And then all of those things come together to create this very unique scenario where these people make these decisions. And the Enterprise C, getting back to my nitpick, has the slowest drive into a goddamn time rift in the history of fucking time rifts i swear to god there's this octogenarian gallifreyan with the cane just uh, uh, making better goddamn time than the enterprise motherfucking c it's just so goddamn slow like this is a slow battle and we get that because we have to choreograph these battles and again i think we have Three or four effect shots, we kind of implicitly cover the difficulty of trying to interdict in space. You're like, you're in space, and they're trying to get a clear line of sight to the ship. So they maneuver, then you have to counter maneuver. But if there's two of them, they split and flank you. And there's really um, the regular aspect angle for the, these kind of, I'm sorry, the, the angle of attack to maximize your effectiveness is to file your ships up to blow out one shield generator right and if you spread out then you're suddenly dealing with two different shield generators so i can see how flanking is useful in that you're trying to get past them but then once you do that you want to line up do that and it's that that's all by implication none of that's ever explicitly spelled out because they got to move these ships however the effects guys got to move the ships so we understand this enterprise is getting its ass kicked because it's just one ship out in the middle of nowhere. There are some unanswered questions here of this episode that I don't need to be asked or question, uh, answered, really. Why is this ship so big if it's not designed to hold families? Uh, what good are troops in a space battle? Why does this thing still look the same and have the same dynamics as the original Enterprise if it's a warship? It's weird that it looks the same way. I know I was talking about form over function. Uh, I'm sorry, function over form and why this thing's so ugly. Perhaps the same efficiencies hold rain, but uh, an enterprise, of, uh, Federation at War, more rocks. You guys should just take those geology stations out. Notice he's fucked up on his right side. He was hit from the left. Whatever. So here we get the thing where they're totally screwed. And then Picard <laughs> is the man of action. He can say that'll be the day. It would have been cool if Picard died and Riker got that line. This has been a pretty Picard-heavy episode, but if we're going to say, hey... Um, and that fade out under the fire, it's nice, it's nice. 
uh, you can say, hey, look, these these deaths are drawing random. You know, if you kill Picard and have Riker go, that'll be the day that he's hanging out. Despite despite our earlier um, conflicts with Riker, how Riker doesn't want the plot to happen, so we kind of don't like him in that episode. Anyway, we're we're back to the current timeline. Everything's fine. They're gonna send a probe, have an Obereth class nerd ship follow up. It'll be fine. So now they're gonna go to Archer Four, which is the place where they just got into that battle at a couple in the, the alternate timeline. So everything's wrapped up nice and clean. It is obviously like to give us a full spoiler. I know Derek doesn't listen to these. Uh, if you haven't seen the series, I'm not gonna I'm gonna bring that up later. So. Um, Everything's back to normal. We get a really good, happy ending here. And Jordy, for some reason, is wearing the alternate timeline uniform with the black cuffs and the full collar. But whatever. A little a little continuity error. <laughs> um, but it's good. Like, one of the things is that you kind of want people to talk about you after you die, to have your memory live on. I think it helps us to talk about people that we know who pass away. And... I, I think to see that pro Guinan aggressively participating in that process and wanting to know about Yar, who's the I guess the the archetypical proverbial, um, you know, the one dead friend that everyone shares of Star Trek: The Next Generation is it's touching in its own way. She's she's touching that human history. She's remembering Natasha Yar just like we do, and Yar was important, and she wants to be a part of that. Because it's part of the crew and it's part of us. Anyway, I, I rambled. I'm not as drunk as I usually am. I am actually 0% drunk. But I, I hope you enjoyed this solo session. And until the next episode, whenever I get my ass up and do some editing. Or until the next solo session. Please remember Rand.